So this is the well. Welcome to it. Uh, is there anyone here for the first time tonight? Raise your hand. Anyone? Anyone? Um, okay. Maybe or maybe not. This person, perhaps? Anyway. Well, whether this is your first time or not, I'm going to say something you hear me say a lot of times, um, which is the description of what the well is. So this is a sort of a Bible study, or at its heart, what, what we do with the well is a Bible study. Uh, and that determines every single week what you hear myself or any other speaker here um, say and how they say it, which is to say that um, it's more uh, Bible-heavy even than um, a typical sermon might be. It also means that, like any good Bible study, that if the well is doing its job correctly, that we're always learning not just something about the particular passage of Scripture that we're studying, but we're also learning how to study Scripture in general. Uh, we're learning not just about a specific book of the Bible, but we're always kind of asking, what exactly is the Bible anyway? And how do we read it? And so, before I actually read to you tonight, it occurred to me um, throughout the course of this day as I was outlining this, um, that this, even more than normal, is very much a how do we read the Bible kind of, of talk uh, that I want to offer to you tonight. And basically what, what I have to share with you is an example of, um, of how do we deal with, what does it mean for us to admit that our Bible argues with itself? Uh, or another way of putting this is, how do we deal with the tensions in the canon of Scripture? How do we deal with what we'd call it canonical tension or canonical disagreement? Um, so sound theologians, sound, sound Christian theologians, ones that are worth listening to, um, whether they're like professional ones or just you know, your run-of-the-mill theologian, um, they, they all admit that there are such tensions in Scripture. That the Bible is not, that the coherence of the Bible is not a coherence of lacking contradiction. Does that make sense? But that whatever the Bible's coherence is, whatever it is that makes it of a piece, that inherent to it is exactly the things that seem to contradict each other, and, or that straight up do contradict each other, and that exist in tension with one another. Um, so, in some ways, even, it wouldn't be wrong to say that the reason we have something called theology in the first place, as opposed to just biblical studies all by itself, the reason we need something called theology, right? Like words about God, pronouncements about God. The reason there's something somewhat distinct from biblical studies that we would call doctrine is, is in some ways because of the tensions that we have in Scripture uh, I, don't want, I don't want to say that's the only thing theology is, but oftentimes, the most important pieces of theology, um, we have theology because we're trying to figure out how do we respond to unresolved tensions in Scripture. What it's like to attend the tensions of the Bible, uh, I think, or, or maybe I, what I'm saying is like, ha, like what you ought to do with the tensions of the Bible, in a very basic sense, is that you should weigh them. So again, what, it's, what it is like to attend these tensions is something like what it is like to weigh, if you were to be weighing different kinds of items or categories of items. By which I mean like what we're looking for in examining and paying attention to tensions in scripture is where does the greatest weight fall? And what are the ratios of the different weights of things that are in tension with each other? What are the ratios of those weights to each other? which is a little different than like weighing things 
in any way that you would in order to like find the winner. So this is not weighing out scriptural data in the same way that you would weigh largemouth bass in like a bass fishing tournament where whoever has the most pounds of bass at the end is the winner. Um, that's, not, that's not what I mean when I say that we're trying to weigh out different uh, scriptural data. But instead, we're weighing out scriptural data in order to be able to see clearly how these different strands of God's word pull upon each other, what kinds of tensions that they put upon each other, in order to see more accurately what kind of a tapestry we have, and indeed, which direction we ought to lean. But even as we lean, like how it is that the other thing is pulling us in that lean, if that makes sense. There can be different geographies of tension in the Bible. Here's what I mean by that. You can have tensions between biblical authors. Where, so you may have a particular biblical author say something here that seems to directly contradict what another biblical author says over here. But very often the most fruitful tensions are internal to a given book of scripture. So, not, so instead of being between different authors of scripture, some of the most interesting ones are tensions that exist in a particular author's work of scripture itself. In fact, in some ways, this is not always the case, but the tensions get more interesting the smaller chunk of scripture you find them in, if that makes sense. That you can find them all the way in as small a place as, in, as a sentence or verse. Likewise, the tensions in scripture themselves vary in kind. So for example, there are like topical tensions, such as uh, sort of the kind of tension that we're gonna talk about tonight. So like the question of um, salvation and righteousness would be like a, a topical tension if we were to be like, how is that portrayed here versus how it's portrayed here? That would be like a topic. But on the other, on the other hand, there are also narrative tensions. So uh, for example, the gospels set the same events in different orders. That's like a very obvious kind of narrative tension that exists in scripture. Or even something as elemental as the back-to-back -back correspondence of two very different creation narratives in Genesis chapters one and two. That's a narrative tension. It's a really easy one to spot um, if you're looking for an example of one. Um, read those first two chapters of Genesis. So that's what we're doing tonight. Um, this is an example of, uh, of what it means to wrestle with that tension. So. Having said all that, here's our reading, which picks up where we left off last week in the latter half of Revelation 19 and goes all the way through the end of Revelation chapter 20. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are flame of fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in midheaven, come, assemble for the great feast of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, 
and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, both free and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assemble to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs of his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he took hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who is a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire, excuse me, and they came up on the broad plain. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet also are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. So yesterday, uh, I did a thing that I'm getting in the habit of doing once a year, which is uh, attending an orientation meeting, which is something you usually only do once um, for whatever the thing is. But it's an orientation meeting for the last stage of, uh, the, of my ordination process as a pastor in the United Methodist Church. Um, we Methodists really like to drag it out. 
the ordination process, that is. And uh, because I enjoy my work so much here at the Wesley Foundation and for other reasons, I've been really dragging mine out for a long time. And so for the last like three years, I've, I've gone to this like pep rally for um, how to write my last huge pile of orientation papers, excuse me, of ordination papers. And this was a pretty good one comparatively. Usually it's a nightmare. Um, but this was a pretty good one despite the fact that it was on Zoom. Um, and there's a lot to say about it. I'm going to tell you a lot more about it, uh, about those papers in the summertime. But for right now, I just, I just want to mention one question, one of the questions that I have to answer in those papers um, that we went over in this meeting was, are you going on to perfection? And then there's a related question, um, do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? So are you going on to perfection? And do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life before you are dead? Um, so, and if you don't know, does anybody here know what that's about? Why in the heck uh, an aspiring ordinand would be asked that question in the United Methodist Church? No Methodism nerds here? Thought I might have one, but that's okay. Um, anyway, so what that is is an artifact of how Methodists have answered what difference do human deeds make in the life of salvation? What difference do human deeds make in the life of salvation? Um, that's all I'm going to say about it for now. I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. Um, this question, what difference our deeds make, uh, it's a biblically and theologically interesting one. And it's one of the things that makes different kinds of Christians, different streams of Christian thought, distinctive. Um, there are big divisions in how people answer this question, but those really huge divisions are basically between what we would call like Pelagianism, which is a heresy that places too much emphasis on humans, human deeds and actually suggests that human beings can save themselves. And that's something we resolved as not the, a thing, at least as early as the fourth century. So anybody that thinks that is a, is a heretic. But then there's also a lot more subtle divisions in that question. How, how do we answer um, the question of what's, what difference do human deeds, do human actions make in the life of salvation? And those more subtle differences um, are, are biblically and theologically interesting, and they end up making up part of what the differences are among Christians uh, who you know and that you are, if you are one. Whether and how we answer the question, what difference do human deeds make in the life of salvation, has important implications for what kind of purchase the Bible is able to get on our lives, among other things. I mean, it has eternal importance, right? Because if we get it wrong, and, uh, you know, then, and, and your deeds are also wrong, um, then that might have eternal consequences, right? But in the immediate present, it has important implications for what kind of purchase scripture can get on our actions. Um, so I, I want to sort of summarize here some of the basic texture of differences and controversy about this question of, of works or deeds um, or effort that humans exert and how, what that has to do with our salvation. So most of us here, I assume, are Protestant Christians. Um, and we Protestant Christians, I mean, there's a whole lot of different kinds of us, 
But we Protestant Christians in general, we have a kind of trained polemical attitude or anxiety about something that we can broadly call works righteousness. You could say in general that we are like hyper anti-Pelagians, like we are very worried about the heresy of Pelagianism and we think that it's a very live possibility for us right here and now that was not resolved in the fourth century. And I think that Augustine, who helped resolve it, um, would agree with us that it's always a potential possibility. Um, But to an extent, to be a Protestant is already to, the first big line between a Protestant and anything else, to an extent, is an anxiety about works righteousness, being worried to affirm, first and foremost, that we are not saved by our own activities, but by God's. So in general, most of us here are what you could call like anti-works or pro-grace, uh, to put it in like bumper sticker terms. We are anti-deeds and pro-grace. Um, we are in our disposition toward the significance of deeds. Very broadly speaking, we are more or less anti-Catholic. So I've been misunderstood on this point before. I just want to say that like I really like Catholics and I think that they very much are real Christians. And... Um, and not, in a not-so-secret way, I think that we need to be profoundly more humble as Protestants in, in letting them teach us about God. Um, so with that said, you can't really be a Protestant without in some way being anti-Catholic. Um, so this is kind of a Catholic versus Protestant thing. Um, you may or may not remember a, guy named, a story about a guy named Martin Luther who, you know, back in the day, well, like 16th century, is that right? Do you know? Yes, 16th century. Um, he was a monk. Uh, and a Catholic, because that's pretty much all there was at the time, was we're Catholics. Um, there's one asterisk there, but anyway. Um, and he got very upset about a number of abuses to theology and practice in the church, and, uh, and he was right about most or all of them. And, um, and he unintentionally created um, a huge rift and schism in the church. Um, and what emerged was a, a nascent community of thought that wanted to affirm God's grace over against man-made righteousness, all right? This is hyper-simplifying things, but there was a desire to affirm that God is solely responsible for salvation, uh, which is a good thing that, by the way, Catholics actually do also affirm and have clarified since then, but What happened was that once there was a division away from the Catholic Church on this point of emphasizing grace, Protestants continued to divide more and more and more and always kind of almost on the same issue. Um, And so there's there's like a spectrum of extremity on this emphasis of grace over against works. This is my wife retrieving our children. Anyway. Um... And what, what, all of, what, what all Protestants do along that spectrum is in some way, shape, or form, especially like at the greater extremes of the spectrum, we de-emphasize the importance of human moral achievement. And depending upon how tenaciously you feel like you have to define God's grace over against human deeds, you're liable to actually um, be like deliberately disinterested in human activity at all, almost except in kind of a a sort of surface level way. So 
in Paul, we have data that we can use to sort of be the, the big, like, places that we would plant the flag, the most obvious places we would plant the flag in Christian scripture. Paul had um, theological polemics he was engaged in in his own day um, with a faction of, of believers who tried to impress, tried to enforce upon everyone who was coming to be a Christian the the requirements of the law of the Old Testament, especially the requirement of circumcision for membership in the people of God. And so there's a lot of language in Paul that because of an urgent missionary situation on the ground, he had to emphasize God's grace, I mean, over against human works, by which he meant the, like, the works of, the, the formerly identifying works of Israel that were previously enforced for everyone, Paul all the time was having to be like, they're not, and here's why. It's because of God's grace and because we're saved by faith. And so in Paul, we get language like that. We get language like, there is no righteous person. In the book of Romans, we hear this. There is no one righteous, not even one person. And Christians who wrestle with this and divide themselves against each other along that line of the defense of God's grace, they, they wrestle with how do you, or we wrestle with, how do we deal with language like there aren't any righteous people, even one, in Paul? How do we reconcile that with things that Jesus says, such as be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? Or your righteousness is going to have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and by the way, that means not the tiniest little dot of the law is going to get to be erased. Um, and depending upon how you answer those questions, what, can, what you can end up with um, is sh- a way of reading the Bible that becomes blind to certain parts of Scripture or that deliberately in a practice way shies away from certain scriptural data and does so on the basis of of other scriptural data. Um, The most extreme or like caricature version of that impulse is, you know, there's like a, it's probably like, I don't know if it's apocryphal or really an actual thing that happened, but the story goes that like Martin Luther wanted to get rid of books in the Bible like the book of James that very straightforwardly seemed to, to connect eternal salvation with what you do in this life and that he may also have been a little uncomfortable with certain stuff in the book of Matthew. But in a less formal way, like where you're not actually like, we're actually going to chuck books of the Bible, we can, depending upon how we answer this question, start to like ignore certain uh, aspects of scripture. And depending upon how far you take it, you can end up with what amounts to a deep, almost paralyzing ambivalence about the significance of human action. Um, You can lose the ability to say, in any way, shape, or form, why anything a Christian would do would matter. That is the attitude or the sickness, the theological sickness, that, for example, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was responding to and trying to correct in his own theological tradition. That's what he was trying to correct in books, especially like discipleship. Basically there, uh, Bonhoeffer is like, of course, yes, let's have Paul, but also, surely, we still get to have the Sermon on the Mount. And then he took pains to say how that can be the case. Like how we can indeed affirm 
that yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but that word grace is not something other than what's happening when Jesus commands us to be perfect as his heavenly Father is perfect in the Sermon on the Mount. That also, that, that sort of ambivalence about our activity, that inability, a sort of paralysis to, uh, about saying, like, why does anything we do matter, that also incidentally is, is a very big part of what gave rise to what we now know as Methodism. Um, it is what our namesake, John Wesley, was attempting to correct and he, that he was reacting against in his own place and time. To oversimplify here, um, Wesley was like, looked around at the church around him who were all like, you know, technically on the books as saved people, and yet there was a very obvious disparity between the life that they were living and what they were commanded to do in scripture. And he was like, I guess these people are saved, but like maybe they don't have all of the salvation. And so what he emphasized was a dimension, this is like a traditional evangelical, like one of the big dimensions of, of evangelical doctrine, the dimension of sanctification. So like, he was like, sure, we need to talk about justification and that it's only through God's grace that we are saved. But also sanctification belongs properly to what we mean by what it means to be saved. In other words, a life of increasing holiness, of perpetual growth, sanctification, growth and holiness, um, that's a hugely important marker of a person who is actually saved. And we need to be able to claim that in a way that is actually motivating to people and where people can really make sense of our Bible and not just only have to read some parts of it. Again, this is like really Cliff Notes version. But, and part of what emerged out of that is, I mean, so part of Wesley's emphasis, like he, he took pains to emphasize that. And in some ways, the extremity of that emphasis is the doctrine of Christian perfection or this language of Christian perfection that I now have to talk about in my ordination papers, I don't know, a booty ton of years later. I have to answer the question, like, do you expect me to be perfect in love in this life? What Wesley meant by that was, if we take scripture at its word, then what we have to say is that Jesus, by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is in fact willing to restore us completely. Um, and that even though we don't often see that taking place, that the, the reason for that is not that it isn't possible, it's because we don't consent entirely to that process. Does that make sense? But that nonetheless, we should pursue it. So that's some stuff some about, about different Christian traditions. In my observation, there's a divergence in theological traditions as to whether or not we can resolve this question. It's like one big division is like, can the question be answered or not? Like, what is the significance of deeds in Christian salvation. I think there are some traditions who are like, we can answer it, and we, we answer it by answering a whole bunch of other questions that are not clearly spelled out in Scripture one way or the other, which I'm not saying is necessarily a bad idea. I'm just saying there seem to be some subtle differences in denominations along these lines. So in terms of the book of Revelation, of what we just read, I think one way of naming that difference, do you or don't you resolve the question of what difference our deeds make? One way of, of, of saying that in the language of, of Revelation is, can we know definitively whose names are and are not written in the book of life? And do we say explicitly whether or not those names can be erased out of the book of life? 
So one big category here of, of theological traditions are those who take like a hard-lined predestinarian tack. And I, I'm thinking here roughly of like what we call Reformed or Calvinist traditions. Um, and on the other side, we have denominations that are like, whatever it is, it's not predestination. It's definitely not Calvinism, all right? Both of those individual camps have different kinds of answers to the question of whether or not salvation can be lost. Typically, those belonging to a Reformed tradition would say that like, you cannot lose your salvation. Whereas people that either don't answer the question entirely or at least they don't answer it in terms of like hardline Calvinist predestination stuff is that they're either ambivalent about whether or not you can lose your salvation or they would be like, yeah, there are ways you can lose your salvation, it seems like. Another thing that, that emerges as differences here is whether or not righteousness, like human righteousness, is a real, concrete, observable possibility in life. So again, you already kind of know where Methodists come out on that, right? You, it should be evident where like Catholics and Orthodox come out on that, because they have people they call saints, and not everybody makes it on that list, right? But there are some traditions that are either like silent on the subject of whether or not there's such a thing as like this person being actually holier than someone else, or they're just like, no, there aren't any, there really aren't saints, basically. Like everyone is, like saint is just a word for someone who has had a conversion experience and is definitely part of the elect and therefore in the book of life. Does that make sense? But they're not actually any more saintly than any other one of the people that's on that list. So in order to affirm again that God is the one, so there's lots of reasons why people decide to be predestinationists or Calvinists. Like, admittedly, there's a crap ton of stuff in the Bible that, like, is in, that like, they, they can use that's like says the word predestination or very clearly is like, yeah, God decides everything. Um, there's lots of data like that in Scripture. But it's not just because there's like Bible verses they can use to prove text. It's also, again, because of this larger theological concern to be like, it's grace over against works, right? That's part of the reason why people reach for more and more extreme versions of predestination. So in order to affirm that, they say, God picks everyone who's saved, which basically ends up meaning, in its extreme versions, it basically ends up meaning there isn't any real meaningful choice in the world for people. Like, you are born already slated to be in the book of life or not, okay? Also, there's another implication here. If there's nothing that we can do to get our salvation, then that also means there's nothing we can do to lose it, right? Like if our deeds don't affect our being saved, then it also follows that we cannot lose, we can't do anything in order to get rid of our salvation. I want to say as well that people in those kinds of camps, they have serious pastoral concerns, not just biblical and theological concerns. One of the advantages, at least potentially, I don't know if it always actually works out this way, but potentially one of the advantages, and I, I do think this is an animated concern for these folks, is um, to be able to resolve the anxiety of Christian life in some way. For people to be able to not have to live in fear that the persistence of sin in their own life, that the ongoing reality of weakness that we talked about last week, means that maybe they're not actually saved. Does that make sense? So there are some like pastoral, potential pastoral advantages to that way of answering the question. Although again, these resolutions seem to make both evangelism to unbelievers as well as repentance 
even for believers, like people who already are part of the elect, it almost, like those extremes kind of make those activities unintelligible. It's hard to say like why they're important. Like why is it important for me to announce the good news? How can I have any actual urgency to announce the good news of Jesus, much less to invite my brothers and sisters into ongoing life of repentance and an ongoing pursuit of holiness if our actions don't matter? And if like at the end of the day, there's nothing I can do to either get saved or not. And everything is already decided for me. So Walker Percy, one of my favorite uh, authors, shameless plug here if you want to read, uh, if you want to be part of the coolest small group at Wesley Foundation. Um, we're going to read a Walker Percy novel here pretty soon called Love in the Ruins. Uh, anyway, but um, he also has this other weird, really, really weird book called Lost in the Cosmos. Quit making fun of my eyebrows. Um, and it's a really off-the-wall book, like I said. It's kind of vaguely nonfiction. Um, but there's this one, basically he like creates all these imaginary scenarios, all these imaginary characters, and he's like, what the heck is going on here, and therefore what the crap is going on with human beings in the world? Like, what's gone wrong? And um, in one of them, he, he offers like a caricature of John Calvin, actually, which I find pretty entertaining. So there, it, he's, he's describing an imaginary clip from a televised talk show in front of a live studio audience. Uh, and typical of such shows, the discussion and the guests constitute a burlesque menagerie of sexually deviant behaviors. And then somehow, inexplicably, in the midst of this discussion of sexual deviance with all the guests, several historic figures just sort of walk out onto the stage. There's no explanation for where they came from. Um, it is, as if they are, it is as if they're just sort of transported through time. And one of these historic figures is John Calvin, who in his turn is asked by the hosts of the show, John Calvin, what do you think about all this sexual deviance? And Calvin replies, quote, what I have heard is licentious talk about deeds which are an abomination before God, meriting eternal damnation unless they repent and throw themselves on God's mercy which they are predestined to do or not to do, so why bother to discuss it? Um, that's it, right? Like that's, I, I mean, obviously, so Percy's a Catholic. He's making fun of Calvinists. He's in, by making Calvin say what is the implication of his theology, which is that like there isn't a way to make intelligible the invitation to evangelize uh, or the invitation to repent and become holy. Moving on. Sorry, y'all didn't like Walker Percy as much as I do. So what about the book of Revelation? We're asking this question, what difference do our deeds make according to the, uh, uh, like in, in the order of salvation or, or in the life of salvation? But what difference do our deeds make according to the apocalypse of John? So Revelation, this apocalypse, is certainly not offering a systematic analysis of the mechanisms or terminology of salvation. Technically, no book of scripture is doing that, but there are books of scripture that seem to do it more than others, like the book of Romans, the most obvious one. But the Apocalypse of John isn't trying to give you a systematic theology course in um, all the different terminology like faith, grace, righteousness, justification, regeneration, all that stuff. Like, that's not what the book is for. It does, however, give us a vision of salvation very clearly. And what it means to be saved here is exactly what it means to be saved in every other book of the New Testament, and I would argue throughout Scripture as a whole. What it means to be saved is not just 
going to heaven whenever you die, like as a disembodied soul, which is what, where we think, what, what we think happened to grandma at her funeral, is that like we buried her body, but she went to heaven because she, one time at a youth event, prayed that Jesus would come into her heart. Rather, salvation in the book of Revelation is resurrection, which is not irrelevant to grandma and what she did at youth camp at all, but it is substantially different than going to heaven when you die as a disembodied soul. So the vision of salvation in Revelation is, simply put, in a word, it's resurrection. Salvation in Revelation means being raised bodily from the dead. And in the specifics of this book, it means being one of the ones clothed in white and gathered forever into the communal joy of fully restored and completed human life in the presence of the living God and of everyone else that is there with him. Um, so it means everything that we had in the Garden of Eden before the fall, plus more. And by definition, it includes embodied life together. Rather than one of those thrown forever into the lake of fire, you have that embodied life of resurrection, right? You are not the one thrown into the lake of fire, which here is described as a second and apparently unending death. It is unambiguously and entirely Jesus through whom salvation is accomplished in the book of Revelation, and it is Jesus in whom salvation consists, which is to say that the greatest joy of salvation is not not being in hell, it is communion with the living God through the Son of God, Jesus. And in that sense, it seems impossible, by which I mean like in the sense that salvation is in and through Jesus alone, it might initially seem impossible that a work's righteousness could be constructed out of the book of Revelation. It might seem like it would be difficult for us to fall into the heresy of Pelagianism when reading the book of Revelation, given how obviously it's Jesus that saves here. And yet Revelation has, in several places, we're almost at the end of it now, and throughout, it has begged the question of what place human deeds have in the life of salvation. First of all, just in, a, in the sense of its purpose, or what it's trying to do in the lives of people that it's given to, pastorally, what Revelation is most concerned with is the endurance of Christians. It's worried about and it's trying to sustain Christians' faithfulness, their ongoing endurance, all the way until the point of their deaths. It's trying to get them to keep on doing the Christian thing. And eternal salvation is the thing that is held out in front of Christians as the hope and the motivation for their endurance. So the basic pastoral call and purpose of Revelation is endure to the end. Hold on until the end. Keep on doing it. And the why, or the sort of carrot, if you want to, make, if you want to be kind of crude about it, that's held out in front of the believers, the hope that's supposed to sustain that call to endurance is salvation. Which is a little different than being like, 
It's okay that you're having to go through this right now because you're saved, which means that when you die, it's going to be better. There's a subtle difference there. Revelation says and said, endure because you want to be saved. Or something along the lines of, you saved people, endure because you want to enjoy the fullness of your salvation. Does that make sense? And that already seems to place a great deal of importance on people's deeds. Just the basic obvious purpose that we see the, the call, the motif, uh, the pastoral reason for this book. It already seems to place a great deal of importance on people's deeds. It is for, sal- it is for their salvation that the Christians must endure. The reward of their refusal to be seduced by the wares of Babylon, the promise to those who conquer, to, uh, to those who hold fast to the faith and the testimony of Jesus, is, in a word, it's their salvation. So again, in the book of Revelation, what difference do our deeds make? Not just in a general broad sense, but what about in our reading tonight, in the latter half of chapter 19 and throughout chapter 20? Um, Here we're going to engage the question from the vantage point of basically two artifacts. The white linen garb of the saints and the book of life. All right, There's a lot of other stuff that you may have questions about in Revelation 19, letter half 19 through end of 20. I'm not going to answer any of those questions right now. But... What we are going to think about is what's going on with this white linen garb and the book of life and what, what difference, how does that help us answer the question, what difference do the deeds of human beings make in the book of Revelation? Both of these things show up in our reading alongside one another tonight, the white garb and the book of life. Um, but before we look here, we're going to look back to the first place that those images or that language showed up alongside each other in the book of Revelation. By the way, I just want to say overall that like most good novels uh, and like stories and books of any kind have some kind of a callback to the beginning at the end, if that makes sense. There's probably some fancy like literary terms for that that I don't know. Um, To me, it seems like Revelation does that even more. Like it's definitely one of those books that if you want to know what's going on, like read the first few chapters and read the last few chapters. And you can interpret almost anything that's happening in between and at either end by seeing the, like, the way they reinforce each other on the ends. Does that make sense? So anyway, so back in the first place we saw the garb, the white garb, and the book of life was back in chapter 3 in one of the letters to the churches. Um, we heard Jesus say this. So he was, kinda, he was giving this church in Sardis a pretty hard time for uh, not being so holy. And he goes on to say in verse 4 of chapter 3, Yet you still do have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, he's now here talking to the people that are not not the ones that are definitely going to be walking with him in white. He says, if you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes. And I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. So... How, do, how does that fit into like this, the different polemical schemes about human deeds that we've already kind of noted? So the whiteness of the robes is definitely given to the, like they don't make the whiteness themselves. Um, and yet it's clear that the whiteness of the robes can be soiled by human actions here, right? Like there are some people whose robes are dirty and some people whose robes are not. And it also seems that that 
whiteness of the, that dirtiness of the robes can be restored once more to its original brilliance if the people in question conquer, Jesus says. And what it means to, to conquer and to be so robed in white is that Jesus will not blot your name out of the book of life, which again seems to suggest that the, what the names of the book of life are not necessarily permanently written there. So that seems like score one point for the not Calvinists, all right? Would you say, overall? Um, or at least like mm, two out of three for the not Calvinists. However, um, all of that seems brought into tension in chapters 13 and 17, where it would seem that the Calvinists score some pretty decisive points when it comes to the book of life. So in chapter 13, it is, um, we, we see the book of life again, and, and here we get the additional description that is the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered. So we know it's the same one that Jesus was talking about when he was like, I'm the one that either gets to blot it out or not. Uh, the book of life that the lamb was slaughtered is mentioned in chapter 13, um, which is consistent, again, with chapter 3 and affirming um, the consensus among Christians overall that salvation is accomplished in and through Jesus only. That's not a tension in Scripture, whether or not like, you can be saved without Jesus. That's not one of the tensions we have. In both 13 and chapter 17, the names in the book of life are a comprehensive list of the only people in the world who do not worship the beast and its images. In both chapter 13 and chapter 17, the people who do worship the beast are described as everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. And that, of course, implies that those who are in the book have had their names written there from before they or any, from before the time that they or any other creature ever existed. Not just before they were born, but before there was ever even anything except the Lord himself. There was the book of life. And at least based on this description, it seems like who was going to make the cut is already there. Um... This is a proof text for Calvinist visions of predestination, I think, if there ever was one. And yet, oddly, chapter 13 ends with the comment, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints, um, which, of course, seems like a call to deeds and seems to assume certainly something other than that uh, it doesn't matter why talk about it anyway, Right? That there's something about this whole thing, this vision of the book of life, that is itself, nonetheless, a summons to holiness and endurance. Then again in chapter 7, one of the first glimpses we get of the people of God who will one day be raised from death to life. This is that exchange where uh, the angel asks John, who are these? And John's like, you know who they are. And the angel answers, these are those who have come out of the great ordeal. So this is the first glimpse in chapter 7 that we get of a much comp more comprehensive view of in chapter 20 and beyond of the people who have made it beyond death, beyond resurrection, and beyond the absolutely final judgment. These are the people who have come out of the great ordeal. They have endured, they have successfully done the summons of the book of Revelation. Endure, hang on to your faith. Don't betray the gospel. These are the people who have endured 
And yet, and so we could look at that and be like, they did the thing. Like, they got there by some kind of human effort. And yet the whiteness of their robes and even the activity of their endurance is summed up in this way. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So speaking of a, of a, of a tension within a sentence, right? Like, they're doing something, washing their robes, and yet it's the blood of the lamb that makes them white. And so it's somehow simultaneously the case that these people are saved because they endured. They did something. They, had, they did deeds. And yet, that takes nothing away from the action of Jesus as the decisive Savior. So back to the linen and book of life in chapters 19 and 20. So in tonight's reading, the fine linen, we, we catch sight of it in verse 14. For whatever reason, you didn't end up with, with versations uh, in your copy tonight, which is okay. But um, this is the verse where we hear of the armies of heaven and that they are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And that is a, uh, a partial quote um, of something that we heard a few verses earlier in the end of our reading, toward the end of our reading last week. In verse 8, we were told that, um, that the saints were wearing fine linen, bright and clean. And verse 8 also told us what it is. It was like, it didn't like leave the symbolism up to question. Like, and here's how you are to interpret what these linens are. It said that it is the righteous deeds of the saint, of the saints. It's the righteous deeds of the saints. And what these righteous deeds seem to consist of, so initially that would seem to be in tension with chapters 13 and 17, right? Does that make sense? Like, the Calvinist wins? Anyway. Um... The righteous deeds, nonetheless, though, they do seem to consist of, like chapter 13 and 17, um, a kind of contrast to those who received the mark of the beast. But here in chapter 19, especially in verse 8, the significance of Jesus' work is not at all immediately in view. Um, like, I think, on some level, the, like, uber-Protestant part of me, when I read this, I'm like, I feel like there needed to be like a parenthetical phrase there or like a footnote or something that's like, righteous deeds of the saints, yes. Also, they don't actually matter because it was Jesus that saved them. Uh, so their deeds are great, but they're sort of incidental to the fact that they're saved. Are you tracking with me? But instead, it just says, the right, they, they have this fine linen, and what it is is it's their righteousness, right? Jesus' work in salvation is not immediately in view. Rather, the deeds of the saints are in view. And at the end of chapter 20, we find, again, a reference to the book of life in verses 11 through 15. Um, then I saw a great white throne, and the one who sat on it, the earth and heaven, fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. According to their works, or in your, in your translation, it may say according to their deeds, as recorded in the books. And this is emphasized twice. It goes on to say, and the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that, that were in them, and all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Um, so decisively, it would seem here, again, that that like, what it is that gets people in the book, again, like we don't have Jesus presiding over it here. And we also don't have the sense, at this point at least, that, that these names were written from before the foundation of the world. Um, that stuff is not in view. Instead, what's in view seems to be what these people did in their lives. Another way of thinking about this is like, what's going on with these two different kinds of books, right? You have books here that seem to be the record of everyone's deeds. And that's the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? The Christians and anyone else. Their, their deeds are recorded in these tomes that are opened. This is a kind of ominous moment, right? And books were opened. This is a moment where people are going to have to give an account for what they did. And everyone actually has, has to give an account for what they did. And then there's this other book, though. And it, it is the book of life. And those are the folks that don't go in the lake of fire. And yet it's also according to their deeds. And so I think the question that comes up is like, I mean, how do you get from one to the other? Like, is it, is it that there is, there are divisions where, like, you can clearly see that, like, some of the people's deeds that are going to be read out of those first kinds of books, like, they were good deeds, and they were good enough, and that's how they got into the book of life? If this is all that we had in the book of Revelation to go on, that wouldn't be probably a wrong conclusion to draw. Does that make sense? It's, it, you could derive a works righteousness from only this if it didn't exist in the kind of complex tensions that it does with other portions of the book of Revelation and the way that they discipline words like deeds and, uh, and the book of life and all that other stuff. Okay. So, to summarize for a second here, some of the important grammar in the book of Revelation when thinking about this question, what's the significance of deeds? A righteousness, deeds, or works, or in, in some phrasings like what they had done or according to what they had done. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, this is the place that we have the largest concentration of mention of Christian works, of Christian's works in the letters uh, to, to the churches that begin the book of Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 are just an address to seven different churches. And uh, a lot of what, like if you were to like do a word search for deeds or works or whatever it is, like most of it's going to be in those two chapters and the stuff that Jesus says to the churches. Oftentimes, the works that Jesus is engaging in his address to the church are blameworthy, and they can even be evidence of like spiritual death or slumber, as in uh, the church in Sardis. We, uh, we read, I know your works. In chapter 3, you have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. So Jesus knows these works. I mean, he knows the works of Sardis. And what he knows is that they evince the way that they are spiritually dead. And his evaluation of their works is that they fall short of perfection in the sight of God. Alternatively, alternatively and even worse, the works of Christians can evince a revolting mediocrity such as infamously with the church of Laodicea, where we read Jesus say, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, I wish that you were either 
cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. On the other hand, often churches have a great many works that Jesus praises. So there's times when Jesus says, I know your works, and it's not like a moment to brace for like, oh boy, here it comes. It's like, good job, boy, kind of thing. So lots of these works are worthy of praise. And indeed, there's even evidences in Jesus' address to the churches of increasing growth in righteousness over time, as with the church in Thyatira, where Jesus says, your latter works exceed the first. It seems to be suggesting that they're making progress in holiness over time. And yet, most consistently what we see is that these descriptions of Christians' works and deeds in these churches are utterly inseparable from an ongoing and persistent need to keep repenting. Almost every single church is invited in some way, shape, or form to repent. And that is the case whether or not they're doing, their works are great uh, or their works are not so great. So I think then, in light of all of that, we can postulate that the righteous deeds of the saints in Revelation chapter 19 and 20, in phrases like, according to their deeds, they don't fit neatly into either the kind of well-intentioned extremities of Calvinism, nor do they fit neatly into the category of like a works righteousness or something on the verge of works righteousness. Maybe they do. Maybe they could potentially fall there. But they definitely don't fall neatly in like a a clean-cut category that has like nice, resolved answers to the questions that some of those different traditions try to offer, like the, the clean, definitive answers. Instead, deeds in Revelation are significant, clearly. Like, they are very significant. And yet... The deeds of the saints have a kind of modeled character. I think like when we read of the deeds of the saints in Revelation chapter 20 and 19, we don't necessarily have to automatically assume that those deeds are a straightforward praise of like a spotless record. Does that make sense? But that like the deeds that have whatever they have to do with the fact that their names are in the book of life encompass both an ongoing struggle for holiness and also the reality of a persistent need to repent. Christians cannot independently be uh, like responsible for their salvation, and yet they are, in fact, responsible in some meaningful way for a summons to holiness and to perseverance, especially in the book of Revelation. So to kind of summarize some of the takeaways, I think, of like what what are the distinctive, some of the semi-distinctive features of deeds in Revelation. Um, The first thing is the righteousness or the deeds of the saints in the book of Revelation and how that that pertains to salvation. Um, They have to do with the ways that in in the words of of Psalm 69, that our folly is known to God. Our folly is known to God. Over and over and over, the litany of Jesus' address to the churches um, is, I know you. 
in, those, in, in chapters 2 and 3. I know you. So the most important thing we could say about deeds in Revelation is that they are known to the Lord. The knowing itself by Jesus of our deeds is, on the one hand, a kind of warning. As with the church, as with his address to the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have a name of being alive but are dead. That's, that's very clearly a warning, right? Yet, at the same time, the knowing of Jesus, of our works, of our deeds, is also in Revelation the experience of being saved. It's not something other than, even in that moment that it's a warning, it's not something other than what it's like to be saved by Jesus. The people who are so warned are folks who are in a relationship with Jesus, in and through their membership in the church, who Jesus is addressing. And the fact that he's warning them at all reveals that he has not given up on them and that his knowledge of their works is not a, it's certainly not just a signal of potential judgment. It is also the absolute promise and the space in which they can receive grace. It's the possibility of grace. Insofar as they're willing to receive that grace and, and finding themselves known that way and turn away from it. This thought of, or this idea of our deeds being known is part of what's going on with these books being opened at the end uh, in Revelation chapter 20, right? Like, that's God's memory and knowledge of us and our deeds. The Jesus of the Christians in the book of Revelation is one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. He is one who sees, who searches minds and hearts. What it means for the church in Revelation to be known by God and for this fact that God knows us and our deeds to be acknowledged before God is very simply that he must either still save us in that moment of being known in our deeds or not. That's, that's like what the knowledge of God ultimately entails. When it comes to God knowing our deeds, it means like either it's enough or not. It brings us to that moment that casts us entirely upon the grace of God. And the reality is, unless you don't know yourself, you know that when God knows you, when he knows your deeds, that they are modeled in character at best. There may be such a thing as a perfect Christian in this world. I have to say that because I'm a Methodist. I don't know any. Certainly none of you are. Just kidding. Anyway. And so being known in our deeds brings us to the realization that God's either going to destroy us or not. And ultimately what it, what it gives way to, if we're willing to avail ourselves to it, is the fact that God loves us. The fact that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And that his knowledge of our ongoing sin is not the same thing as condemnation for that ongoing sin. 
His knowledge of our ongoing sin is always in that instant an opportunity to be saved from our sin. The peculiar righteousness of the saints, then, in the book of Revelation, is being in relationship through Christ with God as people who are continuing to, to discover, continuing to discover that he has set us free from sin and death. The implication of that is something that I've already kind of said. One implication is, is something I've kind of already said, which is that our righteousness, our righteous deeds must be deeds that include acts of repentance, right? Like, it doesn't mean deeds that, like, don't need to be repented of. It means holy deeds, and also it means the deed of turning away from the ones that are not holy. Those are the righteous deeds of the saints that are the white garb that we read of in 19. A life of ongoing repentance. They are also deeds that are carried out in the face of suffering. We've said this a lot of times in the book of Revelation. It, it, it bears repeating at least as many times as Revelation repeats it. The struggle for endurance, for making it, for holding on in Revelation, is not just a struggle over against the temptation of sin. It is a struggle in the face of suffering, which intensifies every other temptation. Their struggle isn't just against a sinful behavior, but it is unto death and in the face of the experience of death in, in miniature uh, experiences of suffering throughout life. So none of that means, those are summaries of what, what the significance of deeds are in Revelation. None of that means that we find a, a resolution in the book of Revelation to the question of what is the significance of human deeds. And the tensions we've examined here are only the tensions, some of the tensions that are internal to one book of the Bible. And I'm not even saying that we shouldn't offer some kind of greater resolution than what the book of Revelation by itself does. However, I would suggest that instead of doing that, we would turn yet again to Scripture, and instead of desiring to resolve the tension of Scripture, pay attention to the way that the Bible invites us to pray the tensions of Scripture. Rather than resolve the tension, the Bible invites us to pray the tensions of our life with God. In the Psalms, we find these tensions of divine and human righteousness, of the relationship between God saving us and our participation in that, our deeds and God's actions. Those same tensions are there, or at least those same things are very vividly present in the Psalms. And yet in the Psalms, they don't beg, it seems to me, for resolution in the way that I find myself begging for it in other parts of scripture that I read. There in the Psalms, side by side, on the one hand, there is this naked admission of real and consequential sin. And on the other hand, there is hope, a live hope, that the, the sinner with consequential sin is loved by God and that righteousness is even a live possibility for the sinner. And there's gratitude that righteousness is available, in fact. So, for example, in our reading from Psalm 69 tonight, sin is very clearly known. Um, in the verse, O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. 
Do not let those who hope in you be put to shame because of me. This is a person saying, not just God, you know my sin and the way that it affects me and the way that it makes me guilty. This is a person saying like, I know that I, that my sin is hurting other people and yet hoping that God will not only be gracious to the sinner, but will intervene in the life of the people who that person's sin has affected. God's sin, or excuse me, human sin is known by God in Psalms in the way that it is in the book of Revelation. Likewise, we find here in Psalm 69 a, a very vivid picture of suffering, of being oppressed, of being attacked, of being lonely, and of having the deck stacked against you. And we see that suffering and the temptation that it must represent gathered into prayer and and sort of tangled up with these deeds that are imperfect and struggling toward something better. So the upshot of all of this, I think of like the way that that these tensions are prayed and sort of resolved in the Psalms, is that the biblical notion of righteousness for human beings is not a spotless righteousness, even though it is a, a substantive righteousness, all right? Which, so it's, by substantive I mean not just that it gets you into heaven or that you have right standing with God, but that, it, that it's real in some way, that, it's, that it can actually grow in some way. Human beings don't have a spotless righteousness, but they do have a substantive one. And the substance of that righteousness, or maybe I should say the payoff of that righteousness, the experience of that righteousness, is communion with God. Now, increasingly, as righteousness grows, and finally in completion in the life of the world to come, the joy of righteousness is nothing more and nothing less than communion with God. So here's two kinds of things that you might do in light of all of this. This next week, try praying Psalm 118. You can pray the entire Psalm, uh, or you could just focus on verses 17 through 18 if you want. Right smack dab in the middle of those verses in Psalm 118, we have these words. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This week, try praying Psalm 118 over and over again and see what happens when you come to rest and dwell upon verse 19 of that chapter. And what I'm wondering about is in that moment, first and foremost, the most important question is, Do you want God to open to you the gates of righteousness? Does the desire that's being expressed in that moment for righteousness, for a life of righteousness that you actively enter into, is that attractive to you and something that you, like the psalmist, yearn for? If you don't yearn for it, that's okay. The psalm has the ability to grow that yearning in you. I think that what you will find if, you, if the answer is yes, 
that you do have that yearning in you is that that yearning for stepping into a life of righteousness is not something that the source of that desire is not from you. The desire for righteousness itself and therefore the possibility of of stepping into righteousness in an embodied way is something that is grace. And so whatever deeds might flow out of that prayer are already swallowed up in the righteous deeds of God. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The psalmist has in mind an awareness that he's got something to do. And yet what he does when, having, when he passes through those gates is not enjoy his power, but give thanks to the Lord. The next verse goes on to say, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And I think in that, the righteous shall enter through it. There's something, even if we can't get it schematically articulated, that if you pray that, you will know what it means to pursue a life of righteousness, to live by deeds that are commensurate with having your life written in the book of life. The second thing, a slightly less maybe abstract or conceptual, or conceptual thing, this is kind of like, think about the significance of your deeds. Ask yourself this next week, what difference do deeds of holiness and righteousness make in the lives of other people? Like, we think all the time about, like, usually the question when it's like a, at a theoretical level is like, what difference do my deeds make in my salvation? Which is not an unimportant question. But I want you to ask and observe this week, what difference do the deeds of Christians make for the salvation of other people? What difference do the deeds of holiness make for people's encounter of Jesus in this world? One of the reasons I found myself thinking about this this week is, is going back to that Zoom meeting that I told you about earlier. Like, for the last three years, I've had to go to one of these. The, the first two like so many other interactions I've had in that venue with a bunch of people that are Christians and they're like professional Christians. There's pastors. They're supposed to be in charge of telling people the good news. But the way I feel when I come out of those meetings is like despairing in ways that are sometimes explicable and sometimes not. But this time I didn't feel that way. And the reason very simply is because the person that's in charge of that meeting from last year to this has changed. Is a completely different person in charge of it. And whereas last year, the person who was leading the meeting um, postured themselves as a kind of gatekeeper over against other Christians and seemed to be threatened in all kinds of confusing ways and seemed to be very self-satisfied in their own righteousness, the person who was in charge of this meeting this week, the, the, the difference was just that they, like, this person cared about us. And honestly, maybe the most important thing was that they really genuinely wanted to know us. I could tell whenever I responded, whenever I would ask questions about this really boring pile of bureaucratic paperwork that we have to do, that the leader of this meeting was responding to me out of a genuine interest in the Lord and a genuine interest in me as a human being. Very simply, he wanted to know me and everyone else in that meeting 
And that made all the difference in the world to the hope that I have for having a future as a preacher in a connection with other preachers in the church. And the hope that I have that there are maybe 50-year-old men out there that I can look up to and who might be capable of leading me. And the hope I have that I can wake up the next morning and live this life. Like, that was an evangelistic moment. And so ask yourself this week, what difference do your deeds make? I mean, those are simple things. Something as simple as like, I want to know this person. And I'm going to do stuff in this conversation that makes, makes it evident that I'm paying attention to them in a way that I'm actually interested. That converts people to Christianity. What difference do your deeds make in other people's salvation? To end, with that thing in mind of not trying to resolve the tension, but trying to pray the tension, I want to ask what difference our deeds make in light of the words we pray and sing at the table of communion. Having recalled the institution of the Lord's Supper every time we celebrate communion, we turn to God and say, there's all those words about Jesus remembering, like do this in remembrance of me, like it says here. And we say, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts of salvation, God, these, your mighty acts of salvation, and, I, and I, I want you to hear that phrase tonight, these, your mighty acts. Because that phrase, that word, these, it refers not just to salvation history, to the events from the Bible that we're calling to mind whenever we're remembering Jesus at the Last Supper. But rather, that phrase, these, your mighty acts, it refers to something that's continuing to happen right now. Remembrance, the remembrance that we're speaking of at the table is not just recalling, but performative. It collapses time, literally, around the flesh and the blood of Jesus. So that when we say, these your mighty acts, the description includes us in the moments that we're remembering, but right now. As if they were not past, but present And the description includes everything that we are doing in and around the table, not just some stuff that Jesus did a long time ago. Here is the pattern of the deeds of the saints at this table. The deeds of those persons whose names are written and remain and are not blotted out of the book of life. Here we find ourselves gathered inside God's mighty acts of salvation Everything in the liturgy is properly speaking the action of God. There's nothing we do here at this table that can be over against or in competition with what God has done and is doing. And yet we clearly are doing some stuff in the liturgy. We're giving thanks. We're repenting of our sins. We're offering ourselves as living sacrifices What we say about that is that we're doing it in union with Christ's offering. And that means we're committing ourselves to live lives of ever greater holiness and conformity with Jesus. And in all this, we are communing with God who loves us and who proved it by performing these mighty acts of salvation while we were still sinners and who continues to prove it right now in his deeds here. Amen.